0: Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. I have the great privilege of welcoming my great old friend from Brookline, Massachusetts, who I grew up with and went to high school with, Grant Cavanaugh, in the studio. And Grant, a few weeks ago, sent me a message and said, "Hey, I want to interview you for your podcast." And he is one of the OG people who introduced me to narrative storytelling on radio. He was always a fan of This American Life and Ira Glass, and so. I was so excited to, first of all, be able to have a conversation about love with my best friend from high school, and also uh, that he would come to LA to do it with me. And so here we are, Grant's gonna interview me. He is, as I said, an old friend. He probably met Ethan, (laughs) he probably met me in English class, uh, probably freshman year uh, in high school. I think we were aware of each other before that, but that was like solidified things. You also showed up in my Spanish class, but then quickly left. We share many close friends. We can remember when the other had long red hair. Yes, we both did for sure. Uh, We've been over to dinner with one another's families many times, more than we can count. We've been on many trips across the country to see each other. That's true. Uh, Oddly for Grant, we overlapped in Los Angeles for a while. Yes, that was an odd place for Grant to be, uh, knowing his background. And we've both had our partners say that they know when they're on the phone with one, one another based on the way they talk. That's awesome. I love that, that unique signature way of speaking. Grant lives in Oakland with his wife, Emily and son, Van. Van happens to be here this weekend, which is awesome. He has a PhD in agricultural economics and works putting together insurance against catastrophic weather. That's the official bio. So, uh, who am I, Grant?
1: Um, Well, uh, a very close friend for a long time, but also a Los Angeles-based artist uh, focused on empowering uh, creativity through music, conversation, and visual arts. Ethan started um, Extremist Love as a foundation to explore alternatives to extremist hate through conversation, art, and embodied experience. He's uh, the founder of Applique, a custom apparel platform focused on helping people start their own clothing line. And in 2017, I got a text message from Ethan early in the morning, um, explaining that he'd had a seizure and was uh, diagnosed shortly after that with brain cancer. And so his ongoing healing journey has inspired him uh, to reorient his life around love and artistic co-creativity. And uh, that is definitely true. But as we'll get into later, uh, it, it's, it's a long arc for him. He's, he's been uh, a loving person for, for a long, long time. Mm. So thanks thanks for having me man.
0: Yeah, dude. Thanks for calling us out and make, making it happen.
1: Oh you look so comfortable in this studio. You've got your head back chilling in the studio. This really is
0: um, I gotta take a selfie so we can you know share like me and my
1: element. Yeah, this this really is a, a kind of special nervous moment for me because I really do love uh, radio and all of my um, uh, you know, Superheroes are like Terry Gross and, and uh, Ira Glass. So um, being here and being involved in radio is kind of uh, a, a glimpse at like what my life would be if if I'd like, you know, pursued my NBA career. <laughs> yes,
0: that's right. You're right. You're, you've always been a radio head. And also you were the dude who introduced me to amazing music in high school. Like there's always you. I think we all probably have a friend who knows the cool stuff before anyone else does. And you were listening to like Brazilian, funky, amazing jams, early days. You were always in a world music. And you introduced me to some incredible Nigerian, and Brazilian, you know, African stuff. And I was just blown away by a lot of the stuff that you were listening to in high school. And part of me was like, how is he finding this stuff? But I didn't really ask those questions. I just accepted that you had the source and your finger on the pulse. And I listened eagerly and accepted any mixes that you would send my way but yeah uh, Grant was that person for me in high school for sure
1: oh yeah we definitely uh connected over that and I always appreciated that you're such a good sport in doing things like uh going to uh Indian grocery store oh yeah uh you know to buy thumbs thumbs up thumbs up or Limca that's right one of those two had um pesticides in it and and subsequently is not sold in india anymore i think it might be limka but i don't want to impugn well, Limca if it's still
0: around i hate to burst your bubble but i think most of the food we consume has pesticides in it
1: yeah almost certainly the soda <laughs> is, is pretty bad yeah um so so that's one way we connected but in speaking more generally like um I am not going to choose a Stevie Wonder song as my song today. Uh, I don't have any love-related tattoos.
0: True. Although many of my guests have.
1: I don't have an extremist love pin either.
0: That's messed up. We'll have to change that. In
1: general, I am an introvert. You are an extrovert. So I want to start by asking, like, why are we friends?
0: (laughs) That's... So I kind of read the questions before, but I didn't really want to read them or prepare responses because I you know, don't want to be wrote about it. But why are we friends? Well, I think we're friends because you are have always been someone that has gone against the grain and kind of bucked the norm. I mean, even as freshmen in high school, a time that is arguably somewhat delicate in how we form our identity, or are in the process of forming one, you had a very clear sense of self. You were decked out in corduroy and plaid from head to toe. You had like chains, and you just had this real like intense sense of, this is who I am, I speak Spanish fluently, I just got back from Mexico, I listen to awesome music, I'm into some weird stuff, and I was like, well, this guy could probably teach me a thing or two <laughs> and and to me that was really enticing and some people might see someone like that and say whoa that's so out of my out of my depth or i'm not you know i, I can't relate to someone like that but to me your curiosity about culture was so evident in your and your knowledge and it came off um, in how you spoke and how you carried yourself and i just wanted to learn more and see what that was about
1: it's it's really interesting to me that like uh, as we've grown up we've kind of gone in opposite directions on those lines like um, like you now have a painted Volvo uh, that it's like true. elicits catcalls on the street I mean like joyous catcalls but still catcalls right um, and I've gone from you know wearing really weird clothes and having long weird weird hair to being a I mean I look like someone who sells insurance and I do sell insurance right. <laughs> Is, is that fair to say? It's pretty incredible, actually. Uh, yes, you've definitely flipped from
0: your high school kind of perhaps rebellious self or whatever that was, expressive self with color and fashion to someone that maybe is a little bit more toned down. That said, you still have the piercings in your ears that could be opened up again if you chose.
1: No, no, they're still open. I put in my sticks usually on the weekends. And... Uh and there's nothing less rebellious about somebody who puts on earrings on the weekend. I mean, that's like <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> right? That's Is how that? you know. That's how you know it's legit. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, but it's so, so tell me about, but tell me about you uh, deciding to let your freak flag fly a little bit in your life. Um. Wow.
0: Well, it's interesting. I think you probably were a big inspiration for that. But I always, I think I always was a very colorful dude even as a kid, like I never let my mother dress me. I always had certain obsessions with primary colors and and certain ways of expression. When I got to high school, I was definitely still in that phase. I I wore colorful stuff, um, sometimes obnoxiously so. I would wear like double polos with the collars up. I don't know what I was thinking, but I definitely had a sense of self and and, and express myself with color and Mm -hmm. with, with art. And that continues on until today. So yeah, I'll paint a car because I think a car is an extension of the body. I think my wardrobe, if anything, is toned down since then, in some ways. But um, yeah, it, it definitely feels as though that's part of spreading love to me is letting go of maybe the the social norms or the expectations that we have, so that we can play and we can be free and we can be reminded, like, oh, you don't have to. Show up in a suit and tie, or khakis and a shirt, or whatever the standard dress code is, in whatever time of your life there may be. You can actually bring some joy to the table by playing a little bit. Put your sticks in.
1: <laughs> you know Only I mean? on the weekend. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not in the office. No, gosh, no. Um. So uh, there's, um, you know, the, there's, there's this poet and philosopher who I like, um, John O'Donohue, and he says of friendship, um, uh, it it could be meeting on a street or a party or a lecture or just a simple banal conversation. Then suddenly there's a flash of recognition and the embers of kinship grow. And there's a, an awakening between you, a sense of ancient knowing. So um, does that resonate with you? Was there ancient knowing? Is that is that why, despite the fact that we're Pretty um, Different people in some important ways. We were connected early on.
0: I think there's something really special about where we grew up So Grant and I grew up in a town and this kind of addresses some of your later questions But Grant and I grew up in a town called Brookline, Massachusetts. You don't know what I'm gonna ask. That's fair enough. Brookline, Massachusetts is in my In my definition an attempt at utopia in many ways Um, obviously there is no utopia per se, but the town is a bastion of parks, all of which were pretty much designed by, including the entire town layout, Frederick Law Olmsted, who is the godfather of American landscape design, who had his office in Brookline, Massachusetts. He designed the pretty much the layout of the park network called the Emerald Necklace in Boston. He's famous for Central Park, for Millennium Park in Chicago, for Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Buffalo, he laid out and designed the city of Buffalo. So so he was this legend. And, and basically our mall, and for many people growing up, was the park. And we would hang out at parks. We would spend our time there. Hang, and, and certainly there was commercial districts where we go as well. But it wasn't really as much about consumption. I think that park almost cultivated this creative and this co-creative energy and spirit And so and also a sense of safety, like a sense like we could go anywhere on our bikes or walk around the neighborhood. And there was always a safe park we could go to where kids would be playing and parents would be out. And even if we weren't with our parents, we could kind of go. And from a young age, I'd go to a park with my friends. And so we have this kind of shared consciousness of a place and grew up in that. And then we also kind of converged in high school and our high school had some really unique Factors. For one, all the freshman class was piled into a building together where we essentially created a pretty strong bond as a class, which was 2,000 students or so, or no, maybe 500 students or 800 students. I think the whole high school was maybe 2,400 students. So it was, yeah, 600. Um, but then we also continued on into an alternative high school called School Within a School. And that had its own unique dynamic it was a alternative democratic community that was very much Supported self-directed learning. We did a lot of interesting programming outside of the school, but we also created our own English curriculum, taught ourselves math kind of mm. in some ways, took, took collective tests together yeah. and okay. um, created our own, you
1: know, <laughs> graduated
0: pr- programs. We
1: once had a group of like Bosnian exchange students who came in and said that they loved this program. They totally wanted to do this, except our math was terrible. We were, we were all bad at math and they were really disappointed in, in, in yeah our our capabilities in terms of math.
0: Yeah, we had I'd say English was the strongest. For they also sure. said the
1: floors were dirty. Oh, they were very Yeah, dirty. but it was filthy.
0: But, we had a lounge, you know. Was, <laughs> yeah. But we, we you know we have these shared experiences. It's kind of like growing up in the same city or you know that that bond. So I think it's not only having the friendship but it's also having like that that shared history that We can carry on into the future and look back on and laugh and memories of us you know walking down the same street or me seeing you yelling i remember vividly like driving to meet up with you and you were walking back to your house yelling about the dow of steve um because it was this movie about kind of sexual dynamics between men and women and you were really going through it with a partner at the time (laughs) and you were just like, "Ah, oh, it's all about the Dow, Steve." And I don't know; I had no idea what you were talking about until I watched the movie. But anyway, I just have great memories of engaging,
1: interacting on the street. So, but but we built that that friendship and history together after after um, you know starting with some spark. Like, why, what's what's that moment where we decide, okay, yeah, yeah, we're 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 friends now. There's like some. <laughs> You know, love between us—that's that's going to be the seed of all that stuff that comes later.
0: It's kind of like a great super stew. Oh yeah, you know, you starts put,
1: with a with a stone.
0: Yeah, right. That, and you put in all the ingredients in the pot, and you can usually eat it within half an hour at once everything's kind of stirred up and mixed up and warm enough.
1: Can't but wait to see where this
0: is going, if you let that stew simmer for five hours, 10 hours. Then you put it in the fridge and then you pull it back out and you simmer it again. The flavors get so much richer and the texture of the soup gets so much better over time or a great chili, you know? It's like the longer you cook it, the more (laughs) it tastes great. So I remember like the story of seeing you in my Spanish class or my English class freshman year and then us reconnecting on the lacrosse field and then reconnecting um, in uh in sws in our high school but i do think i remember in english class definitely you and i kind of there was a spark i i can kind of remember in miss gutman's class where i was like yeah this guy's cool and like we i don't know what it was maybe we sat next to each other we just had conversation or could have been the the work you were sharing but something about it i do remember that happening freshman year
1: cool (laughs) <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Um neat. Well, I mean, uh, it's interesting to me because I've had um I tend to not have as many I'm I'm uh, more of an introverted person. I tend to not have as many friends in in number as 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 uh you do. So, I wonder like are you um you feel like any friendship that you have or, or many many friendships could become that that bigger friendship uh, given the right time and have you is that like a skill that you've just built over time?
0: It's a great question. I think honestly there's something about the depth of investment. Like you and I can't erase the investments we've made our, our time investments in our friendship, right? Like we can't take that away. Mhm. And so we can intentionally choose to live in proximity to other people and spend considerable amounts of time with them. But there's a rare opportunity when we're growing up where we don't have families or nine-to-five jobs. Like, we have school, and fortunately we get to go to school with our friends, and then we have after school, and we have sports. And if, like, our friendships are overlapping in so many contexts, both in, during the day and in the evening and afternoon, undoubtedly, like, that's where you can form these really deep bonds. And sure, if we were to choose to live in communities with folks and really spend time getting to know them, I think we can get close. But there's something really unique about the opportunity we've had to cultivate our friendship through our adolescence into adulthood because we have that foundation of growing up together, basically.
1: So... um so, yeah, we we definitely have this deep, special kind of friendship. But it's also an interesting kind of friendship in the sense that we've never sat and talked about love or um, I, I can't think of a specific time at least where we've talked in those really general terms about the things that in, in some ways are like the most important to us. Mm. So tell me about why we haven't had this conversation <laughs> before we got into a... <laughs> <laughs> recording studio uh, with some microphones.
0: So one of my favorite things about the podcast medium is that it actually becomes like this incredible format with which to have the conversation that's important and to get right to the point. I think there's so much fun in not making things a thing, not making a big deal out of every conversation, to be able to have friendships where you know there's depth and capacity for depth, but also you don't have to always go there. hmm and I do think that you and I have had some deep conversations. I mean, we've shared relationship feelings before, right? We've shared when we've been going through it with various relationships and partners and things that we've been struggling with. I mean, just the example I spoke about, you yelling about the Dow of Steve. <laughs> you know, like that was a relationship challenge you are going through, and, you know, I heard you out. I think how we get into the meat of our lives, you know, we've we've had some deeper conversation since I was diagnosed, you know, there's been some conversation there and I know that there's also been conversations amongst the community beyond me. Oh
1: yeah.
0: Uh, in relation to me. Um, and I, I think that there's sometimes, yeah, the, the realization of mortality becomes a really great way to check in and be like, Oh cool. Like we're not here forever. So like, let's Let's have these conversations, like let's get into the heart of being friends and what that's for. And also, I think we'll see that as our parents get older, you know, or as, as we become parents ourselves, you have a, a one year old, you know, he's this incredible guy. And we're talking about your experiences being a dad. And that's a completely different dynamic than, you know, anything we would have spoken about before. And so I think that we, we may forget, but there are, I think we, we have checked in with each other over time and gotten into the meat. And I do think certain friendships also are oriented around those deeper conversations and others are oriented around other types of dynamics, right? You and I have a really silly, playful, humorous, fun energy together, you know, and we like to laugh and like come up with ridiculous stories and like, you know, talk about our families and the crazy place we grew up and all that stuff. And so that's fun, you know, and there's no, I don't feel like, oh, we got to get serious now and talk about the important stuff. And yet it's true. It would be nice to, you know, sit around a fire and, and, and get real and have like more directed intentional conversations. And I certainly find myself doing that a lot, probably with people who I have less of a connection to than you.
1: So why do you think that is? I mean, why do? You, I mean, a, a couple of people have mentioned that like there's conversations they can't have with their family mm-hmm. um, that are really personal and important to them, and maybe their family is really personal important. But I've just heard people say on on this podcast that there's topics that they don't want to talk about with their family, even though they're really important. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing you say is we don't exactly have that dynamic. We have talked about some of these issues. That's probably true, but. Um, but i would say that that's not the main mode of our of our um, of our friendship and so you know why why do you think that is that um, that that there are these boundaries and people kind of compartmentalize uh, their loving relationships
0: well i do think like the the time at which relationships begin can kind of set the the, the pace of the friendship and so we met when we were what 13 14 Right. So like,
2: yeah, you know, maybe we're
0: still in our 14 year old in Probably. some way. That's like, a pretty good answer. Yeah. You know, we, we still have that. And, and, and that's one factor. And I think like similarly, so the way that we are with our families, right? Like we often maybe revert back to being their, their son or their daughter because, you know, or their child because we're used to being that in that space. We're used to being protected or taken care of or loved in a certain way. And I think that there's a real opportunity to challenge that. And I think I appreciate you doing that in this question. I also think that you're highlighting an issue that our culture often confronts and I struggle with, which is why are we the least vulnerable and loving with the people we love the most? And so often that's our parents, right? Or... Our, our brothers or sisters or siblings like sometimes the most important conversations not everyone has this challenge but I've seen it in my life and I think I see it in a lot of my peers we just d- don't talk about the meaty stuff or we don't want to get into it or or there isn't a tolerance there for whatever reason there's blocks and there's kind of awkwardness around that and yet with a stranger you can almost approach the meat without obje- uh, you know objectively without any kind of like, anything on it. You don't have history. You don't have baggage. You don't have preconceived experiences or notions or concerns about triggering or anything like that.
1: You, you have the ability with like perfect strangers and you do this thing. I don't know if you've, I'm (laughs) I'm sure people have pointed it out. Um, that you do this thing where in a conversation, you'll, you'll start a conversation in like total jest, just joking away with somebody Uh, and then very, very abruptly almost like switch into something very serious, like a very serious topic. You seem to have this ability to pivot, like move your car on a hairpin emotionally within conversations. And I just wonder, is that something that, is that a skill you built over time? Like it it seems like a very particular move you can do in conversations that I don't see a lot of people um, even attempting. So talk talk to me about that.
0: Yeah, well, I just want to say I really appreciate you like your, um, your observation and, and you noticing that about me, it's actually not something that comes up, that many people notice about me. And I think it's interesting that you see that. And, uh, I just want to say you're going to (laughs) die. Sorry. Sorry. I had to do it. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, the, the, that's not something that I think about a lot. I think perhaps one thing that I do think about is how humor can be a great way to diffuse perhaps an intense moment.
1: All the tension has just come out of the room. We're both relaxing. Yeah, and, we're chilling.
0: Uh, we're chilling. Um, and. Humor is a wonderful tool for that and I I think I always want to have humor in my back pocket and and I, I always want to approach life with humor because it's more enjoyable that way and it's more interesting and to take things too seriously I think is a shame. Simultaneously some things are to be taken seriously and shouldn't aren't to be joked with and also to be sensitive to the person who I'm engaging with and sometimes it's about testing the limits and saying whoa like How far can we go can we mess around here or are you like really want to be serious right now because I can go either way and The other thing is also I think there's a nervousness in the humor sometimes and it maybe is really avoiding the deeper stuff and so it's funny this summer I um, We were playing with tarot cards and I pulled this card that was the sacred fool and the sacred fool is this reference of like kind of the jester who knows, who's highly intelligent and you know knows the whole circumstance, but kind of makes a fool out of it all and, and brings the humor into it as the element of just diffusion and 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 um, kind of lightening. And I think there's something in being a love extremist around being a sacred fool, right? To, to use the word extremist both seriously. And ingest right and to say like don't take you know don't take these things so seriously and also yeah if I'm gonna be an extremist I'm gonna be an extremist for love and that's serious you know and I mean I mean that and I want my the rest of my life to be dedicated to modalities of spreading love so to, I don't know if I'm answering your question but no I, w- I haven't been aware of it per se but I do think I really relish the opportunity to build rapport and find commonality with everyone. And sometimes humor is the mode and sometimes uh, being a good listener and really taking someone seriously and hearing them and respecting them is the mode. And sometimes both at the same time is the best.
1: <laughs> Oftentimes it is. Um, so that that question's like part of a, a larger thesis I have about you, which is just that you are good at the collection of skills that constitute making friendships in a way that most people aren't. Um, And I want to know if you think about it as like a set of skills that you're building, like, um, like learning to play the piano or, or something else like, do you, do have you broken it down into its constituent parts and worked on it? And like, do you think of it in those terms? Or is that just exactly what somebody who, who doesn't have, have that skill would, <laughs> would, would th- how they their weird brain would imagine that someone would go about actually building that skill.
0: Well, first of all, I think you got to give yourself some credit. I don't know if you're saying you don't have those skills, but you are very likable and a great guy and very easy to be a friend oh, with. Oh, go on. Yeah, stop it some more. <laughs> um, so don't sell yourself short, Grant. You're great and you're an easy Not
1: friend. Not fishing for compliments.
0: This is about you. Well, in regards to me, I would say early on in my life I learned that the relationships that I had and that I cultivated would get me infinitely further than the knowledge. And maybe it's not so much knowledge, but like what's considered traditional intelligence in a quantitative sense. And so to me, emotional intelligence, for example, your EQ is much more important than your IQ. And that's always been my modest upper end eye and the way that I've navigated the world. And it's worked out for me, you know, for better or worse we both went through you know high school enjoying it for the most part and we had peers who worked their tails off and were really pushing to get into the Ivy League whatever and ended up maybe not getting that goal and were you know and we kind of miserable through it all or didn't really enjoy it as much at least in the academic side And we like had a blast, had this awesome alternative school, got a chance to do really creative stuff, had a funny senior prank, did all this great stuff. And then, you know, we got into these great schools because we had this passion. And for you, I think you were very passionate and incredibly intelligent. For me, a lot of that was actually about relationships and the people that I was connected to, whether it be family or having conversations with others. And I've found even coming out of school, my relationships have gotten me the furthest and my ability to share those relationships with others has gotten me the furthest. So I just realized early on, like this is the way that I'm going to navigate the world, and it's going to help me. For me, it's not necessarily the way for everyone, but friendships and, and building rapport and, and and building respect between people and being able to support their work and then have my work be supported by them. I don't see it as transaction. I just see it as a way of living. And in, and in regards to like keeping stock on my skill set in that, I don't necessarily keep stock, but I do acknowledge and notice when it breaks down, when it doesn't work. And normally that's similar in cultural context. So if I'm not face to face with someone, if I'm just communicating via email or maybe just phone call, when I'm, when the body language doesn't play a role, I'm at a severe disadvantage for being able to really move the needle. Um, when, someone's you know when when i don't feel empowered around someone when i don't feel like able to be completely me or i feel like uh self-judgment for some reason whatever that might be you know i think that can sometimes lead me to be shrink myself a little bit and i'm not as successful in achieving my goals so i noticed the the shortcomings of this strategy and i'm working on eliminating them but yeah in general i just really believe in human the human connection and the how far that can take us.
1: Where are the, um, the places where you notice that consistently that, that maybe you're not yourself or there's self judgment, like, um, that hang up that you just, you just mentioned.
0: Yeah. I I think when I was younger, I felt it often in certain circumstances where I might've felt mm, unconfident in my body. Um, not attractive to women, for example, and and feeling like I, I, I shrunk around people I was interested in. Mm. And that didn't serve me for a while. Yeah. Um, and then I realized when I was in my confidence and in my joy, you know, there was no issue. But when I wasn't, I would shrink and I, I kind of faltered there. I think later in life, perhaps around people who were successful, whether it would be academically or financially, and i would respect that and feel like i wasn't of that elk for whatever reason i think i would energetically and physically shrink and lose confidence um and then sometimes it's in the context of people who have certain power. so maybe i respect them greatly for their work or what they do and if i respect them and put myself in a vulnerable position without kind of Fully processing the respect I have for myself first, then I can open myself up to the possibility of critique or I might even ask for it. And especially if that engagement is happening off like online or on the phone, you know, in a, in a format that isn't serving me physically and I'm asking for something like validation or maybe investment or to be accepted into a program, You know, oftentimes if I'm not in my confidence there, um, it can backfire. And I think that, yeah, I think it's about kind of often giving up power and not in like a controlling way, but just in like my personal power. I give away unnecessarily. And I'm working on that and noticing where I do that and why. And um, usually it's around people I really deeply respect who I don't necessarily feel like I have the, the best rapport yet with.
1: Can you um, can you think of a specific time? Like, I, I, it's it's hard for me to picture you feeling um not not confident. And I mean, you are a pretty confident person, um, and I, I it, it would be helpful to like just get a picture. Like, what, who's sitting in the room across from you uh, that's making you nervous?
0: Well, I would say in dealing with dis-ease in my body and the disease process that I've gone through over yeah. the last year and a half, um. I deeply respect my parents I, and 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 have immense gratitude and, and and I'm inspired by them deeply. And I generally feel extremely comfortable with them pretty much all the time. But around this issue, there's been multiple times when I've struggled to really um, defend my perspective or views um, al- alongside theirs. and they they come from, maybe a more traditional Western school than I do. In you know, my father's a doctor um, and my mother's a teacher and they both very much believe in, you know, the Western, the science, the scientific method and the Western school of treatments.
1: Famously, Ethan's dad was interviewed on national television when George W. Bush ate a pretzel and lost consciousness. (laughs) This when he fainted, yeah, yeah, he
0: fainted, yeah, my dad studied fainting in falls and and yeah, he got it he got some pretzel
1: <laughs> that's amazing, you remember that oh, of course, I remember uh, how could you not Dr Lipsitz. lips it's, yeah, he's awesome it's I, I, one of the biggest pretzel related news in the last in this century, I would say, and and my dad loves pretzels, you know,
0: so he's still he hasn't he's still in the pretzel game he's still down he's from philly too, so that's part of it, but um <laughs> Unsalted though, (laughs) usually like a hard Snyder's of Hanover. I can never get into them. They were so hard on the (laughs) teeth. It's like you're biting into like a brick of pretzel. Anyway, that's a little bit of a sidetrack, but just talking to family about choices that I make for myself, sometimes I don't feel confident. And even though I'm confident when I'm making the choice to do a certain protocol or health approach, they might not agree or they might think it could be harmful or they might be concerned about what I'm doing. And sometimes that's valid and right. And I take it and I listen to it and I hear it, but sometimes it's hard to hear. I feel like uh, my judgment is not being supported and, uh, you know, I I might take it as an attack and and not feel confident around that. And that's been challenging. And I'd say that's a great example of an area where um, there's a little bit of like a, deep respect tied to a feeling like a cowering or a feeling of shrinking around my choices and and how i've approached something um more recently you know i've been applying for foundational resources to support some of my work in the arts and and i talked to a lot of funders and many of them might say you know what this isn't the right fit for you and I might come back and usually that's an email exchange and it's like, well, okay, but if I were to frame it in this way, would that make more sense? And oftentimes they'll say, well, yeah, it would, but is that what you want? Because that's not what you initially said you wanted to do. And so then I have to go back and say, well, actually, and it's actually an empowering thing for them to say that to me because they're giving me the agency to then say, no, it's not. But I appreciate knowing down the line, should things shift, you know, we can regroup. But yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, instances where we give our power away and where we just respect folk for whatever reason and ask for their their, their offering of power, money, resource, attention, time, and they might not have it to give. And sometimes that can feel like a personal attack when it's not, and sometimes I take that, I think. Yeah.
1: So to go back to the first example, like I've got this one-year-old at home. I make a lot of, uh, money, it, <laughs> uh, in, 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 uh, conversation with my wife, you know, together, we make a lot of decisions on his behalf about his health or whatever. Um,
0: but, he should be making those.
1: Yeah. But, uh, but he doesn't have the opportunity to make those right now at this point in his life. So Um, do you have any lessons learned from, from being the the kid who understandably like your, your folks want to be involved in health decisions right now? Mm -hmm. Um, what, what would you tell me as someone who is similarly like, uh, making health decisions on behalf of somebody else potentially?
0: Well, honestly, you intuitively know your son better than anyone. You both. And so you can essentially get feedback from him in real time when you're making health decisions. Obviously, he's not going to like a shot in the arm, regardless of what's in that shot. And the long-term value of it might outweigh you know, the immediate pain that is causing him. And so before he's able to communicate and even when he's able to communicate, there might be long-term thinking that you can foresee that he can't and that's valuable, and I do think there's a reason why you have this parental domain until he's 18, and, and, and I think that that's really important, and I think as he becomes an adult, that's where his choices and his agency really start to become important, and exposure, whether you choose to expose him to things or not, he will be exposed to alternatives from what you've learned and been taught, right? Technology is changing. The world is evolving. The things that you learn when you're, you know, when you're in your student phase are no longer even relevant today, right? And so the pace of change is so fast that the, it's an, uh, undoubtable that our kids are going to be in a different position than we are, you know. And so similarly with our parents, like there needs to be a degree of understanding that there might be information coming in that they have that we never had or haven't considered or wouldn't take seriously, that they may. And they may be willing to take risks. They may have a higher tolerance to risk than we do. They may have a higher um, different value set, a different set of priorities than we do. You know, I think I do have a relatively high tolerance for risk. I also have a certain set of priorities around minimizing toxicity in my body, Um, and so... In regards to that, you know, I've started to make that more clear to my family and they respect that and help me with my diet and a lot of the choices I make. Um, And also, I think there are some things for them that are non-negotiable. And fortunately, we've kind of been through most of those things at this stage. Um, And I also need to know how to assert the things that are non-negotiable for me. And when I need space to make the decision myself and I'm not always going to be able to do that and uh, I'll ask for help, I'll ask for guidance and support from them because I really trust them and respect them. So I think it's about building just a healthy dynamic of respect and both allowing your son to see what options are out there, whether you subscribe to them or not, and make decisions for himself when he's able. And also... have the respect so that he can take your advice and whether oftentimes in the context of kids, it might not be immediately like, you're right, dad, I'm going to do what you suggest, but say, this is what I suggest. Sleep on it. Let's talk about it tomorrow. You know, creating space for kids to almost come to the conclusion themselves is really valuable. And instead of it being kind of something that's shoved down your throat where like, no, this decision has been made rather here's my feedback. This is my advice. Think about it a little bit and tell me what your advice is and I'd love to hear why, you know, and like get into a a little bit of a healthy dialogue. If, If you can treat your kids as peers as quickly as possible, I think you're in a really good position. And sometimes we as kids or as, you know, being sons or daughters or kids of our parents, we treat ourselves as less than even though we have become peers as we become adults in many ways.
1: So your parents, um, are coming definitely from a place of love when when they they want to provide input to your health situation. Like, um, what about um, uh, people who are providing unsolicited advice, which no doubt you've gotten a fair bit of. Um, oh, yeah. oh yeah. And I know that those people also think they're coming from a place of love. I th- I have a two part question. Has any of that advice been helpful? <laughs> and <laughs> And how do you continue to see the love when people are offering unsolicited advice, which is, I mean, you know, I think famously, it's a very hard form of love to to, write, to like see and remain conscious of and just like stick with.
0: Well, the mirroring experience of having this diagnosis and then seeing how people reacted to it when I shared it was unbelievable. And so in any case, like whether they react with advice or they react with tears or they react with words of wisdom or love, just seeing that reaction was so heart, it was so emotional for me because I knew that I had a deep impact on people and it it wasn't like, it was real. And then the way people chose to handle that reaction was always interesting, right? So some people, whether they be my trusted friends and family or folks that I hardly knew sometimes would say words that were really heartfelt and warm and, and loving and sometimes would be insensitive or would offer unsolicited advice. I'd say certainly unsolicited advice can be valuable and I'm you know people have sent me interesting things. I think for me, I'm a curious guy, so I like to just know the landscape of any issue that I'm interested in and I've been forced to be interested in. Brain cancer lately. Yeah. So, you know, cool. I'm going to learn about brain cancer now. I, you know, I don't think it would have been my first choice, but I'm curious about it and I, and I like to know the landscape. So, being aware of all the diets and all the protocols and John of God in Brazil, if I need to go down there and have him do some crazy healing thing, you know, like <laughs> whatever it is, you know, there's all these different modalities so, yeah. and it's cool to have conversations with people about it and be like, yeah, I've heard about that. That's interesting. Or, no, I haven't heard about that. Send me some info. I'd love to hear more. And also to be discerning and and to really ask important questions, like you know, is there clinical data on that kind of stuff, or like where are the trials, or is this more hearsay, or have you experienced this yourself, or you know, has that been beneficial? I do believe anecdotal evidence is really valuable when people have had positive experiences on a particular protocol or healing healing method. But um, yeah, I'd say in regards to just how you how folks communicate with me um around uh, my diagnosis and around dis- disease i would say it's really important to ask how i want to be communicated with and same goes for anyone that's speaking to a loved one or a friend who's going through something do you want to talk about this and how do you want to talk about it you know do you want to talk about it in like the context of the brain and, and all of the science behind what's happening to your body? Do you want to talk about it in the context of your emotions and your heart? What you're feeling? Do you want to talk about it in the context of your day-to-day? Like, what are you learning from this? You know, like, do you want to ask questions? Do you want to offer advice? And then just, like, uh, giving giving the person who's kind of going through it the option to say, you know what, like, I've, I've got a lot of great advice. I'm I'm good with that. But let's, do you know anyone who's going through this? Maybe you could introduce me to someone or... Um, do you, you know, ha, have you had any mortality check-ins in your life, you know, or who, who have you lost that's been close to you and how was that experience or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I'd say, I'd say that like really asking the, the person who's going through it, uh, to, to identify how they want to be communicated with is the most
1: empowering thing that I've found thus far. Do you find yourself doing the same check-in with the other person on the other side of that conversation as you wish they would do with with you is that is that I i feel like you're sensitive to those to those um uh to those issues and like you're good at asking those kind of questions do you do you find that you're basically leading that conversation with other folks
0: in regards to people who are sick, or just anyone—just
1: uh, someone comes and talks to you and wants to give you unsolicited advice, or talk about your your diagnosis, or, or what have you—and then you end up effectively managing their emotions rather than um, them, you know, helping you helping I f- you. I flip the script. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine that happening. Yeah, all the time.
0: Sure. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, because it becomes very clear. The mirroring process immediately articulates where they're experiencing fear, right? And they say, oh, my gosh, I heard about this or my family member went through this or, oh, my God. And it's kind of like, cool, you're afraid of that. You know, that's something that you really struggle with. Or, okay, you you know, you've learned that lesson. Where did that come from? Who told you about that? You know what? And so, yeah, I like to inquire and get, like, basis for information or basis for ideally emotion and story you know like what what are you feeling about this or how does this make you feel or you know a lot of folks really are like concerned about how i'm feeling and the way that they ask almost feels like they're trying to get to a place of um a a reassurance for themselves right it's like how are you feeling so that i can feel okay about you and then move on with my life and that's a weird thing I don't know how to address that one, but I can tell it's almost like I want to, I want them to be like, okay. And I don't know what the intervention is there yet, but I do know like they're not asking for me, they're asking for them because if they were to lose me, that would suck for them. Mm. And that's a little bit of a weird thing sometimes.
1: Yeah. So, um, moving bridging between your experience with this diagnosis and this project, more generally mm-hmm. the the love extremist project. Um, knowing you as I do for a long time, I've seen this arc of you getting more and more interested in love as a topic in your life and making it explicitly part of your life. Um, and that dates way back before your diagnosis. I think somebody listening to the podcast might think, okay, this happened in your life. And obviously that's like kind of an inflection point after which he became really obsessed with the important things in his life, like taking stock of what's important. Presumably that did happen. Mm-hmm. But I also know having known you for a long time that like you loved this stuff. You loved love <laughs> for a lot longer than that. So tell me, tell me a little bit about y- your version of that evolution. Also because like, even though I get to see it in snapshots, like I said, we, we don't talk about it explicitly. So like I, I feel like there's probably a lot of story behind the scenes that I I didn't didn't really see over the last, mm, say, 10 years.
0: Sure. Well, for one, I've been able to put language to things that I've felt for most of my life. And so I think really what this is is as, as we get older and we go through experiences, we get the words and the stories that we can tell, the experiences that can actually articulate what we're here for. And when I was younger, I might have had these feelings and this desire and express myself with color and with art and, you know, believed in co-creativity. You know, I moved to Los Angeles in 2008 to start a business that was solely focused on empowering creativity. That was the entire thing.
1: I still don't fully know what co-creativity is, so maybe you can fill me in. But after that, I don't want to derail you.
0: Well, quickly, co-creativity is just creating in the collective. So singing together, making art together. Uh, making a meal together, um, making something beyond just one person. Okay. Um, and that's always been a value of mine. I've always kind of had this allergy to the stage and to the idolatry of the artist and the separation between the artist and the, and the audience. And to me, um, that's just been something that I both experienced and I, in some ways have also been... Uh, really like juiced on that and i've been in the artist and been on stage and i've also really felt like well i don't like how that leads to this kind of idolatry thing and that that doesn't feel natural i don't want that for me and i wanted to help empower people to discover that we all have the ability to make art and and so that's always been part of my agenda as a human being and in in connecting with mortality over the last year and a half it's just I've doubled down on it and I've realized that I'm not gonna let things get in the way of that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna allow o- other motivations that we often face um, primarily I'd say financial to eclipse my purpose for spreading love um, and it's hard it's really hard because, you need to be financially comfortable in order to be effective and getting into that place. Isn't always obvious. It's not always clear. Like how am I going to get to a place of financial comfort so that I can do my work. And my work is my purpose is, is, is doing work in I would say spreading love at the most basic, um, and finding all the Trojan horses to do that music, art, you know, uh, podcasting, Right, media, experiences, building technology, creating companies, whatever it is, singing. And so, yeah, I guess it's kind of like I realized actually before my diagnosis, maybe in 2013, when I kind of learned about extremist love um, in talking to a former neo-Nazi and a former uh, member of the Department of Homeland Security about extremist hate, um, that I, I felt like there was this purpose uh, and being a love extremist, and activist for love, actually blew the roof off of anything I had ever done before. And I kind of came to this as like, that is the ceiling. Like what is beyond love, right? And almost like some people would say oneness is past love, but really like love is what we're here for. The biggest question people ask when they are uh, asked when they die is like, did I love and, and was I loved? Like that's the big, the big inquiry at the end of life. And so to me, just this whole process of being a human has been about refining to like what's really valuable and important and, and what is deep and meaningful in life. And I can't find much more depth beyond love and deepening love. And so we were just talking about this today, like self-love is one angle of that and finding deeper and deeper ways to get into self-love. Then partnership love is another flavor then there's the collective and the collective can exist in your family. It can exist in your community with your neighborhood. It can exist in the world. It can, you can go to the universe. You can look at all the plants and the animals. There's so many ways to engage in love in our world. And to me, that's exciting because I feel like it's vast and it also has immense depth in every direction. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'd say like this has always been a priority for me, and I'm now able to find the language, having had some brushes with um end of life and disease, and also just meeting interesting folk along the way that have helped me define creativity and art and love as these kind of mediums with which to be an activist and an artist. Um we are coming to We're getting to it. Yeah, I, mean, I gotta do a time check here. But um do you have one more quick one? One
1: that- more quick one. Um yeah, I'll I'll ask this one. It's it's kind of a specific one. Um so uh so I've been getting more seriously into meditation. We went on a silent meditation retreat right. about a year ago. That was uh a, a, probably an interesting experience, especially like awesome. um knowing that I don't necessarily like uh have both my feet planted in the world of like wellness. Uh so um I would imagine that that was an interesting experience, going going with me, because because I don't, I feel like I don't fit in, in a place like that, but I, I I think I do actually. You do, yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, in in the process of getting in more into meditation, I've um. You know, people ask you like, how did how did you get into meditation? And I find that I'm telling the story uh, more and more, featuring this monastery that was down the street from where I grew up. Mm. Um, That's right. I, so I did have a big Franciscan monastery, maybe blo- like on the next block down from where I grew up. Right. Uh, a long block, but still a block. Um, and it felt like a very quiet place, a very kind of like holy place. And it's re- like the resonance of that place has stuck with me very much into the future. Mm. Um, they, they moved out to the suburbs sometime um, around the time I was like, say, six um, but it, it's really stuck with me. I would imagine that like you were not very conscious of that place growing up in Brookline, even though it's come on to take like a really important um, symbolic place in my life. Are there other hidden things, places, people that we, uh, you know, from the place we share, the place and time we shared that I wouldn't necessarily know about that are really important to you?
0: Well, yeah, you came. My I grew up spending a lot of time leaving the city on the weekends and going to a house in the country in New Hampshire on a lake that experience. We get the seasons well in New England, wherever you are. But to be able to go out, and you do this now in Martha's Vineyard, to leave the city and and really engage with nature in a more deep way. This house is kind of in the woods. It's on this beautiful lake. It's near mountains. We'd hike, we'd camp, we'd ski, Um, ice skate on the lake, water ski, swim. I went to summer camps all my life. I'd say nature, really, just having that connection to nature and living in the country, part of my life, literally, and also living in the city, really kind of grounded me in this um, sense of awe and wonder and connection to the greaterness of the of the universe and. I do think that that played a role in my spiritual awareness. And then also music. For me, music was a huge one. I got a chance to sing in a pretty well-respected chorus in, in elementary school and then got an cappella. Pretty
1: well-respected chorus. I yeah. mean, I don't mean to brag, but...
0: We sang with Boston Symphony Orchestra and we went to Carnegie Hall. We did some great stuff. And there was euphoria in that music. And then also just studying music and, and then listening to it And my first real experience with spirituality and music, I'd say, was through the band Fish. A lot of people find it in the dance floor with electronic music. Other people find it in other forms and, you know, African rhythm and and, and Brazilian rhythm and whatever it might be. But for me, listening to Fish is a very New England thing. And um, that connecting to the seasons and listening to that music really brought me into spirituality. So, yeah, I'd say... um, if I were to choose my favorite love song to parlay yeah, into sure, this. Yeah, sure, go for it. Um, for this episode and for this ending to the episode, I would say More by Fish uh, is a song that's just absolutely beautiful. The, the lyrics, vibrating in love and light. Um, in a world gone mad, there must be something more than this. It's just such an incredibly uplifting song. And we've been to Fish shows together and I, I just think like the community around that band and the music they write is just so uplifting and be joyous and loving. And so I'm grateful to be part of that world and to be able to experience that moment in history because I know we're a little late for the dead and some of the other ones, but mm. this is still happening. So yeah, that's that's my favorite love song. Do you have a uh, something that you'd like to share in as an outro as a uh, saying goodbye and Kind of finishing this off, I want to thank you. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you, man. Yeah,
1: um, yeah I, I have a, a song. Um, it's uh, it's from an album um, that I don't think you're going to find in record stores. Like I looked online and there was one Japanese record collector website that had a <laughs> reference to it, but it's all in Japanese. I, uh, um, uh, and the name of the band is Ilu Okan Irowo. Uh, and it's uh the first song on that track, and it's uh, uh the album is Orishas Six. Okay. And um.
0: So you're basically, you're naming something that I'm never gonna be able to find. No, you're online never and never and
1: gonna be able to find it. But I have I have the the copy. You got it. Okay. Yeah, I've got it. So I'll, I'll send it to you. Put but, it on cassette. Tape. Um, but uh, but it's it's an important um. Uh, I think track representing love between us and and a longstanding spark uh, because it was what was uh, playing one night um, when I was just having a good time, really enjoying the music at my house all on my own. Yes. And maybe maybe you can tell the, the rest of the story from your perspective. I
0: happened upon Grant shirtless in his living room going absolutely nuts on the congas which his family had in his living room. And I just was on the porch staring in as if a stranger eavesdropping on a you know, conversation that I, I just was blown away by the energy and just raw joy that was emanating from Grant through
1: playing. I, I don't play the congas, by the way. I, I don't know how to play Like I can just hit You're them just banging on them. Me and time. my one year old play the drums about the same, you know, it was epic.
0: That was, it. I'll never forget that. It was just a beautiful vision of Grant in the zone and it was awesome. Cool, man. This has been Love Extremist Radio. Thank you, Grant, for coming to LA and talking to me and challenging me on some things and, and digging deeper. And uh, thank you all for listening. Find us at your favorite uh, podcast station and please leave comments and share this with your friends and loved ones. And we'll see you on the next one. Mwah.
2: Life in slow motion Feet are in the clay I'm going nowhere Been standing here all day I had a notion There was something more to do As I watched the water From the banks of the river It swelled and grew And i tilt to the left Lean to the right, tilt to the left and lean to the right Walked on coal and slept on glass Amid swords of sound and daggers of light And my heart is screaming Cause half of what I say is lies And it takes so much to keep up this disguise up this disguise I see it doorway